0: Scripture this morning is found in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 32 through chapter 5, verse 6. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his alone, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Dana. Uh, good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good? Okay, good. I'll take it. I'll take it. It's Daylight Savings, the worst day of the year. Um, good to be with you all. My name is Reed. If I haven't met you, uh, if you're new, we're glad you're here. Uh, we would love to, to meet you and greet you. We, as, as Dana mentioned, we have a welcome table. Please stop by. Uh, kiddos, if you're here, we're glad you're here. If you didn't get a, a Kid Connect, those are great to follow along with the sermon. And if you fill it out, come to me. I'll give you candy. That's what I do. That's what I do. Um, okay, so uh, full, full disclosure here, this... Um, I've been wrestling with this text for like the last week and a half or so. Well, really, much longer than that, but knowing that I was preaching this text, uh, I, I've really personally struggled with it. Um, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it, it's hardly believable when you see the story of God striking down people, much less preachable. I mean, like, what do we do with it? Because it's hard enough to talk about money and generosity in the church, much less to add with that, like, God striking people dead. So it's like, welcome to Christ's community. I'm glad you're here. But, um, but, but in all seriousness, I mean, this is a difficult text because at face value, it appears to be this like religious folklore, you know, that early Christians told their kids, you know, to keep them from being greedy. Like, now make sure you give to the church or God will strike you dead. Like, it's like this, like, what do you do with this story? And, and in all seriousness, I want us to address it because, I mean, it, it would be so easy for me to just skip over this section. And, and on that note, I mean, the reason why we preach the books of the Bible at Christ Community is because we take the Bible seriously. We, we, we believe that, I mean, we don't set the agenda for what we teach and preach. We let God's Word speak for itself. And so, yeah, I could pick and choose my favorite parts of Acts and my favorite parts of the Bible, but what I would be doing in that moment, what we would be doing, is playing the role of God's editor. And, and when we pick and choose what we like about God's Word, it is not God that we worship, but ourselves. And so it is important that we thoughtfully go through God's Word, hearing from the whole counsel of His Word, because we believe that the Scriptures come together, these beautiful stories come together to tell one story that makes sense of all of our stories. And, so, and, and beyond that, we believe it is God's Word to us, and so we want to be careful in the way we handle it. And so, so I want to jump into our text this morning uh, and just try to figure out what on earth is going on, and maybe, just maybe... I'll run out of time before we get to Ananias and Sapphira. Um, just kidding, kind of. But in all seriousness, I do want to pray for our time as we jump in and hear from God's Word. So let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit to ask, Lord, that you would bless the teaching of your Word. Lord, I, I confess my inadequacy, my, even my struggles with this text, and we ask, Lord, that, that you would teach us your truth, Lord, help us to wrestle with these words Lord, anything that I say that is not true, may it be forgotten. And anything that I say that is true, Lord, in accordance with your word, may it be remembered, embraced, and lived out. So, Lord, may the the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So uh, this morning, we're looking at this, this idea in, in the book of Acts, the early church, of this unthinkable generosity. We see it on display. Uh, but what we have to understand is in the text, it appears as though there are these two different stories. You have the story of this, this summary statement of what's going on in the church, and then you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and, and they're meant to be read together. You know, in our modern Bibles, the, the chapter divisions, which weren't a part of the original Scriptures, it, it kind of cuts it up and it makes it look like they, they don't go together. It's pause, end of chapter 4, start chapter 5. But they're meant to be uh, seen as one story, and, and these two pieces that come together to tell this one story, I think, are communicating this idea that I want us to look at. And that idea is this, is that you can't fake generosity in genuine community, you can't fake generosity in genuine community. And so, that, that's what I want us to kind of look at and unpack from uh, our section of Scripture, the end of chapter four, first part of chapter 5. And, and really, I want to unpack that by looking at just, just two things. Uh, and so, if, if you ever think that, like, we only preach three-point sermons, this is a two-point sermon. Whoa, isn't this crazy? Uh, but a two-point sermon, I want us to look at two things. And the first is this, is that it is grace that builds generous communities, It is grace that builds generous communities. And we're going to see that in this this first part of the end of chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. And and as we read these words, this is one of Luke's summary statements of kind of what's going on in the life of the church. Uh, He does this periodically throughout the book of Acts. So like if the book of Acts were like on social media, like this would be an Instagram post. Like this is what you would put forth for people to see. It's the highlight reel of what's going on in the life of the church. And, and, and in some ways, I mean, you have to admit that when you read these words and you see the description of this genuine community that's united together in love and generosity, there's something about it that, that kind of causes you to say, What's, what caused this community to act like this? What is it that compelled them to have such love and generosity towards one another? It's, it's kind of like if you, if you meet a couple that's been married for 50 years and they're still madly in love with each other, there's something about that that just causes you to say, what is the secret to your love? What is the secret to your longevity? I want to know. There's something about it that is attractive and appealing. And similarly, we see the same thing in the church as we hear these summary statements, and particularly when we read in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so there is, there's this beauty to that. There's something that, like, something in your heart that says that, that is a beautiful thing. Uh, but, but one thing to be said, and I, we, we discussed this in chapter 2 of Acts, is that this is not a case for Christian communism, okay? So just relax, people. Uh, really, what, the difference here, like, in communism, you are, you are told what is yours is everyone's. But in Christian generosity, rather than being told, we tell others what is mine is yours. There's a difference between that, and so we have to see there's, there's something about the Christian generosity that is not coerced. No one's forced or told that they must sell their property. They are doing so naturally out of a compulsion in light of the grace and generosity they've received through God the Father in displaying His grace in the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and Luke shows us this as you keep reading in verse 33. It says, and with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And so, Luke, what he's wanting to do, he's showing this connection between between the the message of Jesus and the grace we receive from that powerful truth, and the way in which those things lead to a life of generosity. And and so, there's a connection here. These aren't to be seen as mutually exclusive or separate. Luke is showing the connection between the good news of the gospel and the way in which that bleeds into and informs and shapes and compels us to be people who are generous. And I'm not just talking about with money. Generosity has so much more than just our finances. It's no less than our finances, but it is so much more than that. It's the grace of God that is displayed so richly, so lavishly in the gospel in God giving His Son on our behalf who lived the life we couldn't live, who died the death we should have died, who defeated death and His resurrection that He accomplishes for us. When we understand that by faith in Christ we receive the blessings of forgiveness, of reconciliation to God, of, of a new way of seeing the reality of this world and the hope of restoration of all things, that is what compels us to be people who are generous with our time, with our with our abilities, with our resources, with our finances, our possessions? When we understand what we've received from God, it transforms and reorients our relationships in everything. It changes the way we think about our resources. It changes the way we think about our possessions. And Luke shows us this connection between believing the gospel of grace. And the way in which that leads into a life of generosity is he says, right in, the, right in following the, the, the apostles giving testimony of the resurrection, verses 34 and 35, we read these words. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." So Luke, Luke is saying that this, this fledgling community of Jesus followers, I mean, very new, very fragile, but they're very radical in the way in which they are loving each other and, and expressing that love in generosity. And this community, this, this fledgling community, they're, they're kind of marked by two things. They're bearing witness to the message of the, of the cross and the resurrection, the message of Jesus, and they are, in light of that message, caring for one another in a very familial way. And I believe what Luke is doing is showing this correlation between sincerely believing the gospel, believing what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, and how that influences and shapes our ability and empowers us to be people who are generous. I'm not saying that you need to believe in the gospel in order to be generous. I'm not saying that, but that there is something uniquely powerful about the gospel of grace that empowers us, equips us, frees us to be people are generous. But I think it's even stronger than that. Let me, let me say it con- in, in a kind of a converse manner is that it's not just that the gospel empowers us to be generous, but that there's a sense in which our ability and willingness to be generous is an indicator of how deeply we have come to believe and trust in the gospel. That if, if, I, am, if I lack a sense of generosity, the less generous I am with my time, with everything, the less generous I am, that is an indication that the gospel has not come to truly bear its weight upon my life. The less generous I am, the less the gospel has come to impact my life. Which is why Luke, who wrote the book of Acts and also who wrote the gospel of Luke, he records the words of Jesus as Jesus confronts the Pharisees who were kind of condemning and objecting to Jesus as he is loving and forgiving this sinful woman. In Luke 7, Jesus says these words in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus is showing us that there's a deep connection between our ability and willingness to show extravagant love and generosity and understanding the extravagant love and generosity we've received from God through Christ Jesus. Our ability and willingness to live generously, not just with our finances, again, nothing less than that, but but being generous with our words, with our time, with our connections and resources, our ability and willingness to live generously is a strong indicator that the gospel has impacted our lives. Now, let me explain how this kind of took shape in the the life of the early church. Their faith in the gospel, it resulted in this radical paradigm shift in, in their relationships to things like people, power, and possessions. And isn't it cute that they all start with P words? It's just lovely, I love doing that. But anyway, uh, the, you see their change in the relationship to people, to power, and possessions. Uh, because when you understand the culture in, in the Greco-Roman world, the way generosity was displayed and practiced was, was not like how we think about it today. Generosity was operating in what was referred to as a patronage system. And what I mean by that is that that if generosity was displayed, if you were to provide the needs of someone less fortunate than you, you did so not out of a sense of altruism or philanthropy, it wasn't benevolence or, or compassion, but rather it was actually a power move. It was a way of you displaying your power over someone who is beneath you, and it placed them in your pocket, so to speak. It put them in your debt, and they were obligated, not by law, but by culture, to repay that. It was not out of a sense of true love for other people, but rather, I will do this for you so that I can come and exact some favor from you whenever I so please. By giving to the poor, people were essentially just exercising a power move. And it's in this culture that viewed generosity in this way, which in some ways we see that in our world. We give not because we genuinely love people, but we love the idea of being generous and we like the idea that we are asserting our power over someone beneath us. But in this culture, with this view of generosity, the church is radically displaying a new way of life. A generosity that was unheard of, that was unprecedented, a generosity that was expressed in giving, not with the ex- expectation of getting in return. The church was displaying a genuine generosity that was profoundly different than the kind of quid pro quo culture of the Greco Roman world. And, and whether you're a Christian or not, I mean, regardless of kind of your, where you are in the spectrum of faith, you, you have to give some kind of explanation as to this unprecedented phenomenon of wealthy landowners coming together with, with crippled people and social outcasts, and not just providing for their needs, but inviting them into their home, sharing meals together, and acting as if they were family. What, what, can, what, what, is, what is the explanation? On what account can we point to that, that creates this kind of community? The early church, this fledgling community of followers of Jesus, were changed by something radical that produced this radical way of treating one another. And namely, it was the generous grace of God in the gospel that compelled them, that empowered them, that reoriented their relationship to people, to power, and to possessions. And so as we look at this picture, and again, it's a highlight reel. It's a summary statement. But when we look at this picture of the early church, we should ask ourselves this question. Does God's grace make us live generously? When we think of the grace of God, of what we have received from God the Father through Christ Jesus and beyond that, does does God's grace compel us to be a people who live generously? Does the gospel empower us to not simply love the things we've been given, but to love with the things we've been given? It is the grace of God, is it so powerful, so palpable in our lives that we see our resources, our vocations, our skills, our connections, our finances, our possessions, everything. Do we see these things as opportunities to love and serve others? Or do we only see them as means to better our own lives? And again, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with bettering your life, but when we see all that we've received purely for our own benefit and gain, we are missing out on what God has created us to live, or how he's created us to live. And so when we think of the the grace of God, does it it amaze us? Does it mesmerize us? Do we we find ourselves leaving Sunday morning into Monday morning, wherever God places us, with this amazement of God's grace that empowers us and equips us to be people who are generous, not because we must, not because we feel guilty or because we we are compulsed to, but because in light of God's great grace, I long to be a person who is generous because I've seen what I have received. The grace that the early church had received through Christ Jesus put these followers of Jesus on the same playing field. No one saw anyone else as being above them or beneath them. No one understood themselves in this kind of hierarchical structure, but rather they saw that what united them was their shared brokenness and sinfulness, but more than that what united them was the forgiveness that they had received through Christ Jesus. They were open, they were honest, they were transparent with both their requests for help as well as with their resources for generosity. So no one was hiding. I mean, if someone was in deep need, they shared that. And with those who had the resources, they were willing to provide those resources for those that had needs. Their generosity was not fake. Because the grace that they had received was genuine. Can we say the same things in our own lives? Okay, so that's, that's the good news. And it looks like I still have time to talk about Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> I should have preached slower. Um, but, but, but in all seriousness, I, I want us to see the contrast. Between what we see at the end of chapter 4, so you see uh, these early Christians, and Barnabas in particular, who are willing to sell their possessions, their property, and and distribute it to those that had need. And Luke, I think, wants us to see the contrast between this community that is generous because of the grace they've received through Christ Jesus. They, They see that. I want us to see the contrast between that and in Ananias and Sapphira, we see the deception that sows seeds of destruction. So, in the first half, we see that grace, it is grace that builds generous communities. But as we look at Ananias and Sapphira, we see that it is deception that sows seeds of destruction. So, notice how chapter 4 ends. So, Barnabas, he sells this piece of property, he gives it to the disciples, and then chapter 5 begins, excuse me, with a similar story but with a twist. So, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So right away, we see Ananias and Sapphira who were kind of of connivingly conspiring in secret, scheming this plan to sell their property, to take the proceeds, to give it, but to hold back some for themselves. And so again, we're looking at this like, is that wrong? I mean, they're still being generous. Why is God condemning them for being generous just not to the same degree that Barnabas was? Is that the issue here? But notice how Peter confronts Ananias in verse three. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? The grounds upon which Peter is accusing Ananias and Sapphira, it is not ultimately rooted in their greed or their selfishness while that is there the sin behind the sin is their deception it is their deceit it is their it is their uh, attempt to put forth a persona of themselves that is not accurate and, and we and we see this i mean because the thing you have to understand too ananias and Sapphira were not under any they were under no obligation to sell their land and even if they were they were under no obligation to give any of the proceeds to the apostles There was no coercion. Again, Christian generosity says, What is mine is yours. It is not communism that says, What is yours is everyone's. And notice, I mean, Peter says this in verse four. He makes it clear. He says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And so so Peter's affirming kind of this personal property. It's yours to do with it as you please. And then he goes, After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? It was still yours. The money was theirs to give as they saw necessary, which means that they are not being condemned for their greed or their selfishness. They are being condemned because they pose a serious threat to the fragile community of followers of Jesus at this very unique time in history. Ananias and Sapphira are posing a threat by hiding their guilt, by hiding their brokenness, as well as by fabricating a false persona, a false image of generosity and goodness. And and this is not just a violation of character. It's not just that they've been dishonest. It is something that is posing a serious threat that sows seeds of destruction within a community. And and we all know this. I mean, just think about it. There is nothing, virtually nothing more damaging, more threatening to a relationship to a community, to a company, to a church, then dishonesty, then deception, then deceit. If you don't have honesty, if you don't have trust, if you don't have integrity, transparency, you have nothing. Marriages are ripped apart when there there are secrets. Companies crumble when, when people cannot be trusted churches split when there isn't transparency within the leadership as well as within the congregation deception is a big deal and we tend to downplay it i mean like yeah i mean lying i mean that's that's a bad thing but really does it really warrant death and that's where some of us probably are still thinking okay i get it deception's a big deal but is it really does it really lead to this does the punishment actually fit the crime here why does their deception warrant immediate death. And and let me, I don't have a perfect answer, but let me attempt to to offer what what I think is going on here. We have to be willing to recognize that we don't have the greatest perspective on this situation. That's one thing. It's easy for me, for us, to look at the situation and say, Ananias and Sapphira, that their actions don't, don't warrant the consequence they received. It's easy for us to say that because we don't see what is at stake. We can look at the situation and say, yeah, they deceived, that was wrong, it was dangerous, but, uh, I mean, really, that's not that big of a deal. We have to be willing to recognize that we don't see the same thing as God sees because we don't fully grasp what is at stake as they are sowing seeds of destruction uh, through their deception, this judgment that God is bringing upon Ananias and Sapphira, it's, he's not suspending his mercy. He's not, he's not throwing compassion out the window. This is not the overreaction of some, like, childish, capricious deity who is wanting to bring about uh, judgment on this kind of small-time sin. But rather, what is happening here is the appropriate protection of a loving father over his children, What is at stake in this situation is not just money. It's not just the well-being of others. What is at stake here is the bride of Christ, the church. And so as God is stepping in and intervening and removing this threat that is posing itself against the church at this very fragile time, this is not an act of God being angry like a child, but rather being protective like a father over his child. You see, the church at this time was I mean, they faced many oppositions, and many of them were external. I mean I mean, the, the Roman culture, the Roman government, I mean, there were many things that posed great threats to the church at this time. but they were also susceptible to internal threats, to internal corruption. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that Ananias and Sapphira posed such a significant threat to the church at this time that it ran the risk of the church not making it. And I say that believing that God in his sovereignty and his infinite wisdom would not allow that to happen. But what we see is a threat that I believe this risk, the threat that they're posing against the church at this time is not just running the risk of the church dwindling, but it runs the risk of us not even being here today. I believe what God is doing in this moment is not acting like a child, but as a father protecting his children. And and, and as one, one commentator puts it, Richard Longnecker says this so well, he says, The way Ananias and Sapphira attempted to reach their goals was so dramatically opposed to the whole thrust of the gospel that to allow it to go unchallenged would have set the entire mission for the church off course. So we can look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and we can say, gosh, how how God must be a malevolent dictator. I mean, this is not fair. This is unjust. How could he act in this way? Or we can attempt to look at this situation and see the work of a loving father protecting his children as well as his future grandchildren. And we can look at the situation and say, why is this such a big deal? Or we can step back and say, gosh, the church must be that big of a deal for God to remove this kind of threat at this time. Perhaps the issue that I have and that you have with this story is not with God, but it's with an understanding of how precious and important and vital the bride of Christ, the church, is. Let me put it this way. If you think about um, children... Uh, so my wife and I, we have four kids, and our youngest is Edmund. Uh, and so he's, look, look at him. Just look at that kid. That's a life-size picture, by the way. Uh, he's, he's a big kid. Uh, but Edmund is our youngest. And there is a sense in which I am more protective of Edmund right now, not because he's my favorite, not because he's my son, not because he doesn't walk, which he's still, he's, he's lazy, but, uh, but it, because he's vulnerable, he's fragile, at this stage, he is the child who is our, like, I, we always say this, like whenever we're out in public, like, like I just always say, like when I'm looking for my kids, like where is the most vulnerable? Where is our most vulner- vulnerable child? Is he okay? I am more protective of Edmund because of the stage of life that he's in. In the same way, I believe that God is, is taking this action against Ananias and Phyron not because he's capricious, not because he's childish, not because he's malevolent, but because he's protecting his newborn children who are so fragile at this stage, and he is protecting them so that he might preserve his legacy, the great-grandchildren that would come and be a part of the community of Christ that is the hope of the world that God has promised from the beginning. This story should not cause us to say, how angry must God be? But rather, it it should cause us to ask the question, how important must the church be? Now, let me bring this a little closer to home for us. Again, we can look at this story and question God for why he would do this. Or we can, we can honestly take a good look at ourselves and ask if we are anything like Ananias and Sapphira. Are we anything like these two that, that who are intentionally putting forth a false persona of themselves so that they might be perceived as being more generous and kind and holy than what they actually are? Do we find ourselves living in that way? And so in that vein, the question for us is this, are we honest with our brokenness? Are you and I honest with our brokenness? Is it possible that you and I are guilty of the same sins of, of hiding our brokenness and, and, and putting forth a, a fabricated image of generosity that isn't true to who we are? And do we realize that that poses a threat to this community as well as to the community we all find ourselves in on Monday morning? Is it possible that you and I pose a threat is it possible that you and I have put forth this false persona? I mean, who who are we really? Who who am I really? And and if I'm gonna be honest, in some ways this sin is, is one that I am more susceptible to. As a person standing up here, I'm teaching the Bible, you know, it's easy for me to put forth this image that I've got my life together, that I am super spiritual that I have devotions for 26 hours a day with my children and eight days a week. You know, it's like I can put forth this image before you very easily. And heaven forbid that that ever be the case in my life or in any of our lives. Are we a people who are willing and able to be broken? Are we a church where it is okay to be broken with one another, where it's okay to share and reveal how broken and sinful we are? Am I a pastor who communicates that? who shares in his own brokenness with his people. And if we are not, if we are not a church, specifically us, Christ's community, if we are not a church where it's safe to be a sinner, where it's safe to be broken, then you should find another pastor because this is not a safe place for me. And I say that for all of us because we're all broken, we're all sinners. This place must be a safe place for us to be honest with our brokenness. And the thing that compels us to do that is the gospel of Christ Jesus that declares to us simultaneously we are far worse than what we could ever imagine, but we are far more loved than we could ever dare hope. So as we bring all this to a close, let me, let me say this. No matter where you are, like in your faith journey, the spectrum of faith, the thing that, that we're, we all share in common is that we all long for the good life, whatever that is. And we all think that there's some path that leads to that life. And what we see in the story of Ananias and Sapphira is that that pathway is not found in fabricating generosity, in putting forth a persona of goodness, of hiding or denying or diminishing how broken we are. On the contrary, the path to the good life is readily admitting and recognizing that you and I have the capability to be the worst version of ourselves we could ever imagine. And that through the gospel, we are freed and empowered to be people who are honest with our brokenness. The path to the good life is not found in hiding our brokenness, but in readily admitting it, confessing it, recognizing it, sharing it, so that through Christ Jesus we might be forgiven and redeemed. When the grace of the gospel truly comes to bear in our lives, I believe in this story it shows that two things happen. First, It frees us to love with the things we are given. And second, it frees us to be honest with our brokenness. Because in the gospel, what we see is that God saw us at our worst. He saw us in our worst state and said, I'm not leaving. I have seen you at your worst and I'm in. I am with you. I will not abandon you. Which is why the apostle Paul says in Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not while we had figured it out, Christ died for us, or once we started attending church every week and started giving, Christ died for us. But it's while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because of that, we have nothing to hide and nothing to prove. There's no need to prove ourselves or to make ourselves look great before people, there's no need to put forth a false persona as we gather as the church on Sunday morning and there's no need for us to put forth a false persona wherever we find ourselves on Monday morning because the gospel frees us to be honest with our brokenness and in that it frees us to love with the things we've been given. The grace of Christ is what frees us to be broken and frees us to be generous. If that's true, then let's, let's live like it both today and tomorrow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you in prayer asking that you would, by your Spirit, awaken us to the brokenness that is in all of us. Lord, I pray that you would shine a light into the, to the nooks and the crannies of our hearts and souls that, that live in ways that are contrary to your good design. Lord, would you protect us from being a people who put forth a persona that is inconsistent, that is dishonest. And Lord, may you captivate our hearts by the gospel of Jesus in such a way that we feel not out of a sense of obligation or guilt, but out of the joy that we have received. May we live generous lives for the good of others. Lord, would you do this for your name's sake and for our good. We pray in Christ's name, amen. May God continue to equip us to be a church for all people where it is okay to be broken because Christ redeems all of our brokenness. So with that said, um, I invite you to stand for our benediction as we leave this place for the last time preparing ourselves for our time in our new space. Hear these words in the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. Brothers and sisters, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich in him. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.